Chapter Three, Part One of the Deluge, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Deluge, Volume Two, by Heinrich Schenkewitz, translated by Jeremiah Curtin. Chapter Three, Part One. Now the terrible Arvid Wittenberg made himself heard. A famous officer brought his stern letter to the cloister, commanding the fathers to surrender the fortress to Miller. In the opposite event, wrote Wittenberg, if you do not abandon resistance and do not yield to the said general, you may be sure that a punishment awaits you which will serve others as an example. The blame for your suffering lay to yourselves. The fathers, after receiving this letter, determined in old fashion to procrastinate and present new difficulties daily. Again days passed during which the thunder of artillery interrupted negotiations, and the contrary. Miller declared that he wished to introduce his garrison only to ensure the cloister against bands of freebooters. The fathers answered that since their garrison appeared sufficient against such a powerful leader as the general himself, all the more would it suffice against bands of freebooters. They implored Miller, therefore, by all that was sacred, by the respect which the people had for the place, by God and by Mary, to go to Viluni, or wherever it might please him. But the patience of the Swedes was exhausted. That humility of the besieged, who implored for mercy while they were firing more and more quickly from cannons, brought the chief and the army to desperation. At first Miller could not get it into his head why, when the whole country had surrendered, that one place was defending itself. What power was upholding them? In the name of what hopes did these monks refuse to yield? For what were they striving? For what were they hoping? But flowing time brought more clearly the answer to that question. The resistance which had begun there was spreading like a conflagration. In spite of a rather dull brain, the general saw at last what the question with Kordetsky was. And besides, Sadovsky had explained incontrovertibly that it was not a question of that rocky nest, nor of Yasnagora, nor of the treasures gathered in the cloister, nor of the safety of the congregation, but of the fate of the whole commonwealth. Miller discovered that that silent priest knew what he was doing, that he had knowledge of his mission, that he had risen as a prophet to enlighten the land by example to call with a mighty voice to the east and the west, to the north and the south, Sursum Corda, raise your hearts, in order to rouse, either by his victory or his death and sacrifice, the sleeping from their slumber, to purify the sinful, to bring light into darkness. When he had discovered this, that old warrior was simply terrified at that defender and at his own task. All at once that hen-house of Chenstohova seemed to him a giant mountain defended by a titan, and the general seemed small to himself, and on his own army he looked, for the first time in his life, as on a handful of wretched worms. Was it for them to raise hands against that mysterious and heaven-touching power? Therefore Miller was terrified, and doubt began to steal into his heart. Seeing that the fault would be placed upon him, he began himself to seek the guilty, and his anger fell first on Count Vihard. Disputes rose in the camp, and dissensions began to inflame hearts against one another. The works of the siege had to suffer therefrom. 
Miller had been too long accustomed to estimate man and events by the common measure of a soldier, not to console himself still at times with the thought that at last the fortress would surrender. And, taking things in human fashion, it could not be otherwise. Besides, Wittenberg was sending him six siege-guns of the heaviest caliber, which had shown their force at Krakow. Devil take it, thought Miller, such walls will not stand against guns like these, and if that nest of terrors, of superstitions, of enchantment, winds up in smoke, then things will take another turn, and the whole country will be pacified. While waiting for the heavier guns, he commanded to fire from the smaller. The days of conflict returned. But in vain did balls of fire fall on the roofs, in vain did the best gunners exert superhuman power. As often as the wind blew away the sea of smoke, the cloister appeared untouched, imposing as ever, lofty, with towers piercing calmly the blue of the sky. At the same time, things happened which spread superstitious terror among the besiegers. Now balls flew over the whole mountain and struck soldiers on the other side. Now a gunner, occupied in aiming a gun, fell on a sudden. Now smoke disposed itself in terrible and strange forms. Now powder in the boxes exploded all at once, as if fired by some invisible hand. Besides, soldiers were perishing continually, who alone, in twos or threes, went out of the camp. Suspicion fell on the Polish auxiliary squadrons, which, with the exception of Kuklinovsky's regiment, refused out and out every cooperation in the siege, and showed daily more menacing looks. Miller threatened Colonel Zabrojek with a court-martial, but he answered in presence of all the officers, Try it, General. Officers from the Polish squadrons strolled purposely through the Swedish camp, exhibiting contempt and disregard for the soldiers, and raising quarrels with the officers. Thence it came to duels, in which the Swedes, as less trained in fencing, fell victims more frequently. Miller issued a severe order against duels, and finally forbade the Poles' entrance to the camp. From this it came that at last both armies were side by side like enemies, merely awaiting an opportunity for battle. But the cloister defended itself ever better. It turned out that the guns sent by Pan Myskovsky were in no wise inferior to those which Miller had, and the gunners, through constant practice, arrived at such accuracy that each shot threw down an enemy. The Swedes attributed this to enchantment. The gunners answered the officers that with the power which defended the cloister, it was no business of theirs to do battle. A certain morning, a panic began in the southwestern trench, for the soldiers had seen distinctly a woman in a blue robe shielding the church and the cloister. At sight of this, they threw themselves down on their faces. In vain did Miller ride up, in vain did he explain that mist and smoke had disposed themselves in that form, in vain besides was his threat of court-martial and punishment. At the first moment no one would hear him, especially as the general himself was unable to hide his amazement. Soon after this the opinion was spread through the whole army that no one taking part in the siege would die his own death. Many officers shared this belief, and Miller was not free from fears, for he brought in Lutheran ministers and enjoined on them to undo the enchantment. They walked through the camp whispering and singing psalms. Fear, however, had so spread that more than once they heard from the mouths of the soldiers beyond your power, beyond your strength. In the midst of discharges of cannon, a new envoy from Miller entered the cloister and stood before the face of Kordetsky and the council. This, 
was Pan Sladkovsky, Chamberlain of Rava, whom Swedish parties had seized as he was returning from Prussia. They received him coldly and harshly, though he had an honest face and his look was as mild as the sky. But the monks had grown accustomed to see honest faces on traitors. He was not confused a whit by such a reception. Combing briskly his yellow forelock with his fingers, he began, Praised be Jesus Christ. For the ages of ages, answered the congregation in a chorus. And Kordetsky added at once, Blessed be those who serve him. I serve him, answered Sledskovsky, and that I serve him more sincerely than I do Miller will be shown soon. Hm! Permit me, worthy and beloved fathers, to cough, for I must first spit out foulness. Miller, then, <coughs> sent me, my good lords, to you to persuade you <coughs> to surrender. But I accepted the office so as to say to you, defend yourselves, think not of surrender, for the Swedes are spitting thin and the devil is taking them by the eye. The monks and the laity were astonished at sight of such an envoy. Pan Zamoyski exclaimed at once, As God is dear to me, this is an honest man, and springing to him began to shake his hand. But Sladkovsky, gathering his forelock into one bunch, said, That I am no knave will be shown straight away. I have become Miller's envoy so as to tell you news so favorable that I could wish, my good lords, to tell it all in one breath. Give thanks to God and his most holy mother who chose you as instruments for changing men's hearts. The country, taught by your example and by your defense, is beginning to throw off the yoke of the Swedes. What's the use in talking? In Great Poland and Mazovia, the people are beating the Swedes, destroying smaller parties, blocking roads and passages. In some places they have given the enemy terrible punishment already. The nobles are mounting their horses, the peasants are gathering in crowds, and when they seize a Swede they tear straps out of him. Chips are flying. Tau is flying. This is what it has come to. And whose work is this? Yours. An angel! An angel is speaking! cried monks and nobles, raising their hands toward heaven. Not an angel, but Sladkovsky at your service. This is nothing. Listen on. The Khan, remembering the kindness of the brother of our rightful king, Jan Casimir, to whom may God give many years, is marching with aid and has already passed the boundary of the Commonwealth. The Cossacks, who were opposed, he has cut to pieces, and is moving on with a horde of a hundred thousand toward Lvov and Himonitsky. Nolens Volens is coming with him. For God's sake! For God's sake! repeated people overcome, as it were, by happiness. But Pan Sledkovsky, sweating and waving his hand, with still more vigor, cried, That is nothing yet. Pan Stefan Charnetsky, with whom the Swedes violated faith, for they carried captive his infantry under Wolf, feels free of his word and is mounting. Young Casimir is collecting troops and may return any day to the country and the hetmans. Listen further. The hetmans, Patatsky and Lance Karonsky, and with them all the troops, are waiting only for the coming of the king to desert the Swedes and raise sabers against them. Meanwhile they are coming to an understanding with Sepieha and the Khan. The Swedes are in terror. There is fire in the whole country, war in the whole country. Whosoever is living is going to the field. What took place in the hearts of the monks and the nobles is difficult of description. Some wept, some fell on their knees, others repeated, it cannot be, it cannot be. Hearing this, Sledkovsky approached the great crucifix hanging on the wall and said, 
I place my hands on these feet of Christ pierced with a nail, and swear that I declare the pure and clean truth. I repeat only, defend yourselves, fail not, trust not the Swedes, think not that by submission and surrender you could ensure any safety for yourselves. They keep no promises, no treaties. You who are closed in here know not what is passing in the whole country, what oppression has come, what deeds of violence are done, murdering of priests, profanation of sanctuaries, contempt of all law. They promise you everything, they observe nothing. The whole kingdom is given up as plunder to a dissolute soldiery. Even those who still adhere to the Swedes are unable to escape justice. Such is the punishment of God on traitors, on those who break faith with the king. Delay. I, as you see me here, if only I survive, if I succeed in slipping away from Miller, will move straightway to Silesia, to our king. I will fall at his feet and say, Gracious king, save Chenstohova and your most faithful servants. But most beloved fathers, stand firm, for the salvation of the whole commonwealth is depending upon you. Here Sladovsky's voice trembled. Tears appeared on his eyelids, but he spoke further. You will have grievous times yet. Siege guns are coming from Krakow, which two hundred infantry are bringing. One is a particularly dreadful cannon. Terrible assaults will follow. But these will be the last efforts. Endure yet these, for salvation is coming already. By these red wounds of God, the king, the hetmans, the army, the whole commonwealth will come to rescue its patroness. This is what I tell you. Rescue, salvation, glory is right here, not distant. The worthy noble now burst into tears, and sobbing became universal. Ah, still better news was due to that wearied handful of defenders, to that handful of faithful servants, and a sure consolation from the country. The prior arose, approached Slidovsky, and opened wide his arms. Slidovsky rushed into them, and they embraced each other long. Others following their example began to fall into one another's arms, embrace, kiss, and congratulate one another, as if the Swedes had already retreated. At last the prior said, To the chapel, my brethren, to the chapel. He went in advance, and after him the others. All the candles were lighted, for it was growing dark outside, and the curtains were drawn aside from the wonder-working image, from which sweet abundant rays were scattered at once round about. Kordetsky knelt on the steps, farther away the monks, the nobles, and common people. Women with children were present also. Pale and wearied faces and eyes which had wept were raised toward the image, but from behind the tears was shining on each face a smile of happiness. Silence continued for a time. At last Kortetsky began. Under thy protection we take refuge, holy mother of God. Further words stopped on his lips. Weariness, long-suffering, hidden alarms, together with the gladsome hope of rescue, rose in him like a mighty wave. Therefore sobbing shook his breast, and that man who bore on his shoulders the fate of the whole country, bent like a weak child, fell on his face, and with weeping immeasurable had strength only to cry, O oh, Mary, Mary, Mary! All wept with him, but the image from above cast brightest rays. It was late at night when the monks and the nobles went each his own way to the walls, but Kordetsky remained all night lying in the chapel in the form of a cross. There were fears in the cloister that weariness might overpower him, but next morning he appeared on the bastions, went among the soldiers and the garrison, glad and refreshed, 
and here and there he repeated children the most holy lady will show again that she is mightier than siege guns and then will come the end of your sorrows and torments that morning yatsek bujanski an inhabitant of chenstohova disguised as a swede approached the walls to confirm the news that great guns were coming from krakow but also that the khan with the horde was approaching he delivered a letter from father anton pashkovsky of the monastery at krakow who describing the terrible cruelty and robbery of the swedes incited and implored the fathers of yasna gora to put no trust in the promises of the enemy but to defend the sacred place patiently against the insolence of the godless there is no faith in the swedes wrote father pashkovsky no religion nothing divine or human is sacred and inviolate for them it is not their custom to respect anything though guarded by treaties or public declarations that was the day of the immaculate conception some tens of officers and soldiers of the allied polish squadrons besought with most urgent requests miller's permission to go to the fortress for divine service perhaps miller thought that they would become friendly with the garrison carry news of the siege guns and spread alarm perhaps he did not wish by refusing to cast sparks on inflammable elements which without that made relations between the poles and the swedes more and more dangerous tis enough that he gave the permission with these quarter soldiers went a certain tartar of the polish mohammedan tartars he amid universal astonishment encouraged the monks not to yield their holy place to vile enemies considering with certainty that the swedes would soon go away with shame and defeat the quarter soldiers repeated the same confirming completely the news brought by Slodowski. all this taken together raised the courage of the besieged to such a degree that they had no fear of those gigantic cannons and the soldiers made sport of them among themselves after services firing began on both sides there was a certain swedish soldier who had come many times to the wall and with a trumpet-like voice had blasphemed against the mother of god many a time had the besieged fired at him but always without result kamita aimed at him once but his bowstring broke the soldier became more and more insolent and roused others by his daring it was said that he had seven devils in his service who guarded and shielded him he came this day again to blaspheme but the besieged trusting that on the day of the immaculate conception enchantments would have less effect determined to punish him without fail they fired a good while in vain at last a cannon-ball rebounding from an ice wall and tripping along the snow like a bird struck him straight in the breast and tore him in two the defenders comforted themselves with this and cried out who will blaspheme against her another time meanwhile the revilers had rushed down to the trenches in panic the swedes fired at the walls and the roofs but the balls brought no terror to the besieged the old beggar woman constancia who dwelt in the cranny of a cliff used to go as if in ridicule of the swedes along the whole slope gathering bullets in her apron and threatening from time to time the soldiers with her staff they thinking her a witch were afraid she would injure them especially when they saw that the bullets did not touch her two whole days passed in vain firing they hurled on the roof ship ropes very thickly steeped in pitch these flew like fiery serpents but the guards trained in a masterly manner met the danger in time a night came with such darkness that in spite of the fires tar barrels and the fireworks of father lyasota the besieged could see nothing meanwhile some uncommon movement reigned among the swedes the squeak of wheels was heard men's voices at times the neighing of horses and various other kinds of uproar 
the soldiers on the walls guessed the cause easily the guns have come surely said some the officers were deliberating on a sortie which charnyetski advised but zamoyski opposed insisting with reason that at such important works the enemy must have secured themselves sufficiently and must surely hold infantry in readiness they resolved merely to fire toward the north and south whence the greatest noise came it was impossible to see the result in the darkness day broke at last and its first rays exposed the works of the swedes north and south of the fortress were entrenchments on which some thousands of men were employed these entrenchments stood so high that to the besieged the summits of them seemed on a line with the walls of the fortress in the openings at the top were seen great jaws of guns and the soldiers standing behind them looked at a distance like swarms of yellow wasps the morning mass was not over in the church when unusual thunder shook the air the window panes rattled some of them dropped out of the frames from shaking alone and were broken with a sharp shiver on the stone floor and the whole church was filled with dust which rose from fallen plaster the great siege guns had spoken a terrible fire began such as the besieged had not experienced at the end of mass all rushed out on the walls and roofs the preceding storm seemed innocent play in comparison with this terrible letting loose of fire and iron the smaller pieces thundered in support of the siege guns great bombs pieces of cloth steeped in pitch torches and fiery ropes were flying balls twenty-six pounds in weight tore out battlements struck the walls of buildings some settled in them others made great holes tearing off plaster and bricks the walls surrounding the cloister began to shake here and there and lose pieces and struck incessantly by new balls threatened to fall the buildings of the cloister were covered with fire the trumpeters on the tower felt it totter under them the church quaked from continuous pounding and candles fell out of the sockets at some of the altars water was poured in immense quantities on the fires that had begun on the blazing torches on the walls on the fireballs and formed together with the smoke and the dust rolls of steam so thick that light could not be seen through them damage was done to the walls and the buildings the cry it is burning it is burning was heard oftener amid the thunder of cannon and the whistle of bullets at the northern bastion the two wheels of the cannon were broken and one injured cannon was silent a ball had fallen into a stable killed three horses and set fire to the building not only balls but bits of grenades were falling as thickly as rain on the roofs the bastions and the walls in a short time the groans of the wounded were heard by a strange chance three young men fell all named Jan. this amazed other defenders bearing the same name but in general the defense was worthy of the storm even women children and old men came out on the walls soldiers stood there with unterrified heart in smoke and fire amid a rain of missiles and answered with the determination to the fire of the enemy some seized the wheels and rolled the cannon to the most exposed places others thrust into breaches in walls stones beams dung and earth women with disheveled hair and inflamed faces gave an example of daring and some were seen running with buckets of water after bombs which were still springing and ready to burst right there that moment ardor arose every instant as if that smell of powder smoke and steam that thunder those streams of fire and iron had the property of rousing it all acted without command for words died amid the awful noise only the supplications which were sung in the chapel rose above the voices of cannon about noon firing ceased all drew breath 
but before the gate a drum was sounded and the drummer sent by miller approaching the gate inquired if the fathers had had enough and if they wished to surrender at once kordetsky answered that they would deliberate over the question till morning the answer had barely reached miller when the attack began anew and the artillery fire was redoubled from time to time deep ranks of infantry pushed forward under fire toward the mountain as if wishing to try an assault but decimated by cannon and muskets they returned each time quickly and in disorder under their own batteries as a wave of the sea covers the shore and when it retreats leaves on the sand weeds mussels and various fragments broken in the deep so each one of those swedish waves when it sank back left behind bodies thrown here and there on the slope miller did not give orders to fire at the bastions but at the wall between them where resistance was least indeed here and there considerable rents were made but not large enough for the infantry to rush through suddenly a certain event checked the storm it was well toward evening when a swedish gunner about to apply a lighted match to one of the largest guns was struck in the very breast by a ball from the cloister the ball came not with the first force but after a third bound from the ice piled up at the entrenchment it merely hurled the gunner a number of yards he fell on an open box partly filled with powder a terrible explosion was heard that instant and masses of smoke covered the trench when the smoke fell away it appeared that five gunners had lost their lives the wheels of the cannon were injured and terror seized the soldiers it was necessary to cease fire for the time from that entrenchment since a heavy fog had filled the darkness they also stopped firing in other places End of chapter 3, part 1